0: Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Abhishek Jain, Senior Program Lead at the Council for Energy, Environment and Water. Abhishek's work at CEEW focuses on energy access in India, productive energy use and clean cooking. As you'll hear, Abhishek has done a great deal of work and research into the energy access and productive livelihood sector and shares his research and findings with us in this episode. In part one of this two-part conversation, Abhishek provides us with an overview of the energy system in India, the progress that's been made in electrification in recent years, solar-powered productive energy use technologies, such as devices like solar-powered sewing machines, solar milling machines, and what the CEEW is doing to accelerate the development of the productive energy use industry. We also discuss the significant benefits, but also potential drawbacks with solar powered water pumps. In part two of our conversation, we discuss his work and research in clean cooking, the various clean cooking technologies that exist, the benefits from a health and social perspective, and what the challenges are surrounding faster adoption of clean cooking technologies. Finally, we close our conversation with a discussion around his top 12 not-so-obvious takeaways about the productive energy use sector. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Abhishek Jain from CEEW. Hi, Abhishek. Welcome to Distributing Solar. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Yujan. I'm happy to be here.
0: You're the senior program lead at the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, which is a non-profit policy research institution that uses data, integrated analysis and strategic outreach to explain and change the use, reuse and misuse of resources. At least that's how it's described on the website. Your work at CEEW covers a huge range of topics, including energy access, productive energy use, clean cooking, electricity reform, irrigation, among a list of many other things. So we're really looking forward to our conversation. But before we dive into our themes that we'd like to talk about, could you start by maybe setting the scene for what CEEW does as an organization? And where do you focus in particular?
1: Great. Thank you, Eugen. So the Council on Energy, Environment and Water, CEW, as we usually call it, is about a decade-old organization. We started in 2010. And as the name itself suggests, we focus on different areas of sustainability, particularly a lot on climate and energy, but also on various other domains. And the way we work, it's an independent, not-for-profit think tank. We conceptualize our own research, looking into the areas where there is a need for generating knowledge and there are existing knowledge gaps. And the issue is amenable to policy or business action. We do our independent research and then we engage with decision makers, be it businesses or be it policymakers, advise them on various issues regarding sustainability. And that's how we slowly change not just the narratives, but actual policies and implementation on the ground. In terms of different areas of our work, as you already mentioned briefly, we work in fairly diverse areas. We look at some of the short to uh, immediate term issues, which are like more pressing needs and energy access is one of them. But along with energy access, we look at various other challenges such as water stress, air pollution, which is particularly a big challenge in a country like India. We look at issues of access to cooling as well as the transition towards cleaner energy as a whole. More in terms of sort of medium-term issues, we look at industrial sustainability, we look at climate risks, as well as adaptation to climate risks. We are also working on mobility, in particular electric mobility, and we have just started a program on sustainable food systems a few months ago, which I'm also spearheading at the council. But apart from immediate to medium-term issues, there are a couple of things that we also look at in the long-term, and these include sort of uh, long-term Integrated Assessment Modelling for Climate Change, where we look at scenarios up to 2050 to 2100s. We also work on sort of over-the-horizon technologies like hydrogen, particularly for industrial use, and so on. So this is just to give you an idea of the broad spectrum of things that the organization is working on.
0: And where do you focus on in particular within that broad spectrum of
1: activities I mean, I've mainly focused on the energy access vertical, which is something which I built and continues to lead here at the council. But over the last couple of years, it is slowly evolving from energy access to energy access and rural livelihoods, given the intersection that we see between energy and livelihood, which is becoming more and more prominent day by day. But also I'm running a sustainable food systems program. That's one of our youngest and newest initiative. But we also see a lot of need to work on this area, given the significant implications of how our food system is impacting climate and how climate is impacting our food system and how it is going to become more and more challenging in the coming years. Perfect.
0: So I'd like to dive in then to the the core of our conversation. And I guess there are three areas that we're particularly keen to talk about. On the one hand, it's energy access and the conjunction with Powering Livelihoods, which is an initiative that's recently started. We'd love to hear more about that. You've also done quite a lot of work on clean cooking, which is probably an area that hasn't, I think, received as much attention as the rural electrification projects and the rural electrification initiatives, but incredibly important. So to start with the CEW's work, do you focus exclusively on India or do you look at
1: other geographies as well? That's a good question, Eugene. So, I mean, when we started out, we, of course, primarily focused in India. But even from day zero, one of our core values among the three values is having an international orientation the other two being independent and integrated. So we do look at various international issues, which means that we have enabled quite a few city or state-level partnerships between different cities in India and different cities overseas, which also means that we have played a fairly active role when it comes to international negotiations, be it on climate change, be it on hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, which are used in your air conditioners and refrigerators, or be it the aviation sector deals, which happen globally. So there's a lot of focus in terms of how India's work or India's actions are impacting uh, global outlook on environmental issues and how the global outlook is actually impacting decision-making back home. But more specifically, we have also worked in a couple of other geographies, including South Africa and Indonesia, particularly helping them with their renewable energy transition, especially taking learnings from India's own growth trajectory and how India has managed to bring down cost of renewables to a significant level. So yeah, there's some work which happens beyond India, but predominant focus remains how India is evolving its own development pathways.
0: So it sounds as though your work is primarily focused on India and maybe to set the scene as well for India with regards to energy access and electrification. India has made huge efforts in recent years to increase the electrification rates of rural areas, but there is still, by the reports we read and what we hear about, still a huge need and opportunity for further electrification efforts, whether that's with regards to reliability or maybe last mile customers. Can you start by giving us a quick overview of the electricity system in India, the progress in recent years, and also the challenges that are still remaining?
1: Sure. And as you rightly pointed out, Eugene, that there has been quite a bit of progress in the recent years. When I started working on energy access issues behind the scenes almost uh, a decade ago, but more actively almost six to seven years ago, we were witnessing a large population, almost around 250 to 300 million Indians who were not having access to basic electricity. And I'm proud to say that now situation has significantly evolved in the last six years. And in fact, just earlier in this year, we just completed a nationwide survey, which is representative of about 97% of Indian population, covering almost 21 Indian states. We found out that now the household electrification rate in India is close to 97%. So while the government claims that we have achieved universal electrification, I think we have almost reached there. So that's good to know that even from an independent assessment that we have undertaken, that there is actually an improvement on the ground. And we have been tracking this for a while now. We did a first survey in 2015, a second survey in 2018. And now this one is our latest in the series. But while connections are necessary, they are not sufficient, right? So we also try to look beyond what is happening beyond connections, beyond extending wires to every household. And there, I'm again uh, glad to share that we have made a lot of progress, even in terms of our supply situation. Rural supply in particular has improved quite a bit over the last few years which is a great thing to witness. Again, when we did the first round of our survey in some of the really less developed states of India, but also facing energy access, as a big issue. Uh, We used to find 12 hours as the median hours of supply in these areas. So only about half the time in the day you are getting electricity. Whereas now that median hour of supply has increased uh, up to 21 hours across the country, but even in these sort of backward states, it is anywhere between 18 to 21 hours. So it's a great move forward. And I hope that we can continue the momentum, because it's one thing to achieve connections for everyone, but it's another thing to sustain the reliable supply for everyone and constantly improve. So in a nutshell, this is how things have improved. Of course, the last three to four years have seen a major improvement. In fact, between October 2017 and November 2019, in those 18 months, we electrified close to 25 million households that's uh, almost equivalent to saying that we electrified about 50,000 households every single day for those 18 months. So that's sort of an unprecedented rate of electrification that we have witnessed. And it also has accompanied itself with improvement in supply. But yes, having said that, the uh, challenges remain and we need to still keep on the momentum towards improvement.
0: And have those electrification efforts been primarily spearheaded by the national energy or national electricity companies? Or have there been distributed energy or off-grid energy companies working in the space contributing to those efforts?
1: Right. So I would say that the bulk of it, as in the major chunk, has come on back of government initiatives, primarily extending centralized grid to various parts of the country. And in fact, until 2015, the focus was on actually developing the infrastructure so that it reaches each and every village of the country without necessarily ensuring that electricity is being provided to every household in that village. Whereas in the last uh, four to five years, the thrust was a lot more on connecting all the households, especially in the areas with less connectivity. And that has really increased the overall penetration of electricity and primarily all, all of that being led by government-led efforts, which are being done across each and every state. So electricity in India on our constitution, it's sort of a concurrent subject, which means both the central government as well as the state governments play an important role. But having said that, there are uh, parts of the country where grid extension did not made neither economic sense nor sense from a physical terrain perspective so there are about half a percent of indian population it seems like a small proportion but in terms of absolute number that is still substantial which has received electricity only through decentralized solutions including solar home systems mini grids and micro grids and so on but there are also a lot of areas where, especially if areas with the reliable electricity is not a given, where a lot of the microgrid solution providers are providing their services along with the grid services. Because people have started valuing the reliability of electricity and they are willing to pay additional premium to private sector players to provide that electricity service.
0: Perfect. Thank you for that. So I'd like to start by speaking about your work with the Powering Livelihoods Initiative, which is a $3 million program recently started at the beginning of 2020 that you are currently running and spearheading. And the focus of the program is around mainstreaming decentralized renewable energy-based solutions to power livelihoods in rural India. Can you tell us more about this program, the need for this program, and what you're looking
1: to achieve Yeah. So this program around rural livelihoods has been something which came on the back of years of research that the council has been undertaking on the subject. Back in early 2017, we realized that while we are moving in a decent way with regards to improving our electricity access for households, there are many other areas for which electricity access is not necessarily improving. And we need to start looking at which are these particular end demand sectors, how can we meet their energy demand and so on. So for about a year and a half, we did a long term piece which looked at both the demand side of rural energy access with regards to enterprises and productive use uh, and also looked at the supply side, like what kind of solutions are already existing, what kind of penetration these solutions have, why are they not scaling up if they are not scaling up right across the innovation value chain from a new idea till the scale up of a final solution, what are the different challenges the ecosystem is facing and so on. So on back of that extensive research and engagement with uh, a whole lot of stakeholders in the community, we realized that what are the key gaps that we are looking at uh, and how we can plug some of those those gaps to bring some initial momentum to this space. Most people talk about productive use, solar for productive use, renewables for productive use, but it still remains a very nascent stage across the globe, not just in India. And that's why we were sort of breaking our head about two, two and a half years ago that what do we really need to do, uh, at least in the Indian context on this? So based on all that research, we designed this program along with the oldest and the largest social enterprise incubator in India called WillGrow. It's a joint partnership between CEW and WillGrow where we have managed to raise resources of about 3 million to launch this program earlier this year. And what essentially the program is trying to do is work with enterprises who have already developed energy efficient, innovative, clean energy powered livelihood solutions, be it in uh, agri, agriculture and allied services or be it in textile value chain. These are the two predominant rural economy sectors that most developing countries would have, but particularly the case is true for India. So we are looking at various innovations in these two sectors of the rural economy and helping a few selected enterprises with significant capital support of the order of about 200 to 250,000 US dollars to deploy these solutions in large number in thousands to start with. And as they deploy these solutions in a commercial manner, we are gathering evidence from the ground in a large way that whether these solutions work, whether these solutions are able to improve the income of the end user for whom they are being deployed, whether the end users are able to pay back for these solutions if they have taken loans or credit to acquire them, and whether the enterprise itself is commercially viable as they are deploying these solutions. And why are we generating all this evidence is because we want to use this evidence to then engage with policymakers, financiers, investors, so that they start extending their support to the enterprises and to the sector. Right now, because there is an absence of such deployments on the ground, if you speak to financiers, if you speak to policymakers, they don't take you seriously. They don't believe that these solutions can work. They don't believe what is the potential of these solutions are and whether they can actually make an economically viable case. So the idea here is generate meaningful evidence, use that evidence to unlock support so that you can create a sort of positive circle, a reinforcing circle, which can constantly increase the deployments on the ground. Uh, and in the process, create a few success stories of successful enterprises, which would inspire other innovators to come on board and innovate for these solutions. So in a nutshell, that's what uh, Powering Livelihood is trying to do.
0: Perfect. Could you speak a bit about some of these solutions? When you describe a solution, are we talking about solar water pumps or solar powered sewing machines? What do the solutions look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, solutions uh, come from a whole variety of different sectors of the livelihood uh, space, or so to say, the rural economy space. Uh, When we started digging for some of these solutions, of course, the usual suspects are solar water pumps, which are already deployed in a large number in India, thanks to, again, government-led programs. India has about 300,000 solar water pumps already deployed, which I guess, in my knowledge, is the highest number of solar water pumps anywhere in the world. But other than solar water pumps, we looked at various other solutions in the agriculture value chain. These varied from coal storages, which are solar powered, but uh, also biomass powered, very interestingly. But we also saw other solutions like various value addition technology. Solar dryers for drying up, particularly horticulture produce, uh, particularly fruits and other perishables. We saw various grading and sorting machines, which can help improve income for the farmers because you can then sell your produce based on the quality to different kind of off-takers. We saw various processing machinery, from milling machines to mill your grains such as rice, wheat, to dehusking machines to polish your pulses, oil expelling machines to extract oil from oil seeds. Then, even in the textile value chain, there is a whole bunch of innovation that we could look at. We saw various spinning machines, which are in India called solar charkhas. We saw solar powered weaving machines, looms, hand looms or paddle looms, which have been now customized and converted into solar looms. So, in fact, there is a whole range of green clothing, which is becoming slowly a trend, at least in sustainability conscious consumers. So yeah, so these are the variety of solutions that we see from solar swing machines to solar cherkas to solar looms, to solar silk reeling, solar bamboo processing machines, and so on and so forth.
0: Great. So these are solutions that are already being used, currently available, but perhaps not being used at scale or being used in a large enough capacity. So the aim of the program then is to take those technologies that already exist and help them scale. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, if I have to just map, like, so to say, the technology funnel of clean energy powered productivity solutions in India, I guess there have been experiments and early stage technologies, which would be close to maybe about 75, where people have tried to run various kind of solutions on solar power or decentralized renewables. There would be about 20 odd, which have started some kind of commercial production or are at least being tried out on the ground in some commercial ways. But there are only about five solutions which have found some commercial maturity. And these are uh, literally, you can count them on your fingers, solar pumps, solar coal storages, solar sewing machines, solar charkhas, and solar refrigerators. So other than these, most of the other solutions are actually deployed in very small numbers, usually in tens and at best hundreds in very rare cases. So what we are trying to do is work with some of the solutions which are in those early stage deployment numbers Where the technology is proven with the end user, they're happy, there is a value proposition for the end user, and it's been deployed in tens or early hundreds. And pick those technologies, support these enterprises, and help them deploy in thousands. Uh, And as you do that, generate evidence so that you can help unlock a growth cycle for these enterprises and for the sector as a whole.
0: And the program has just started at the beginning of this year. And on on your website, you were soliciting grant proposals for businesses and projects. How far along are you on the program? And when do you think you'll have the initial results?
1: Right. So yeah, as you rightly said, we started at the start of this year with the call for application for this program. Uh, We received about 100 applications from different parts of the country. And we did multiple uh, rounds of shortlisting from uh, 100 to top 21, now to top six. So we have identified our sort of top six enterprises uh, whom the program is extending both the capital as well as technical assistance in order to grow these enterprises, but also on back of these enterprises, grow the sector as a whole. And I mean, in the middle of all this, COVID ended up coming uh, our way, which sort of derailed some of our plans, but has not really derailed any motivation. So we had to extend some emergency support to some of these enterprises to make sure that they survive through these challenging times. And you can imagine that most of these enterprises are basically small to medium scale enterprises, right? So they do not have a whole lot of bank balances or cash reserves that they can tap into, particularly if they have some of the existing outlays, which they cannot necessarily reduce in these times. So we are extending emergency support to some of our enterprises who need that support in these times. But alongside, we are working with them now to create business strategies and business plans for the next two years and do their financial modeling along with them and help them uh, figure out how they are going to tap into a very different kind of evolved demand as a result of COVID. I mean, all the plans that an enterprise had before the COVID are not valid. We have very different kind of customer se- sentiment right now. You have very different kind of cash flows with your potential customers. Your bankers and financiers are, are looking at the same risks very differently uh, or are evaluating the same risks in a very different way. So it's a different world that we are slowly entering into, and we are gearing ourselves uh, up to that along with our enterprises. But we do hope that in the coming one year, we will have a wave of initial set of installations already on the ground, and we will start collecting some of the baseline data for our potential end customers so that we can then track the overall impact of these installations, these deployments on the end user, their incomes, their livelihoods, and their lives. And in the process, we are also doing some of the engagements with the wider sector. We are already engaging with various ministries and departments of the government to sensitize them about the whole need of looking at clean energy for livelihoods and why this is becoming even more important in the times when we are induced by the pandemic. And along with that, we are also engaging with financiers and investors in the sector. Because we do not want to generate all this evidence in isolation from those who are actually going to use this evidence. So right from the day zero, we are engaging with investors, financiers, to understand what is it that they are looking for in these enterprises, in the sector, so that our support can actually help these enterprises achieve those scale, achieve those kind of revenues, achieve those kind of sales growth that these investors and these financiers actually are becoming interested in these enterprises and the sector as a whole. So yeah, broadly, that's where we are. And we are hoping to create some initial impact within the next one year. The overall program would run for three years. We are already six months into it and looking to impact uh, Indian livelihoods in a significant way, particularly in these COVID-induced times.
0: And if I recall correctly, there was a recent grant that allows you to focus on work in gender inclusion. Can you speak a bit about that and the work that Powering Livelihoods is doing around gender
1: Yes, indeed. There was a grant which we received from DFID and Shell Foundation, which particularly looks at how we can improve gender inclusion in powering livelihoods. Gender inclusion is something which is very close to our personal hearts, but also at an organization level, we try and focus on gender inclusion in most of our work. And we wanted to make sure that we are able to bring in the same philosophy and aspiration into Powering Livelihoods because this is one of the biggest program that the council is running right now. And we want that as we create these new quarter of enterprises, this new quarter of solutions going on the ground, we are ensuring that the gender inclusion is there in the thinking right from the beginning. And it is not coming as an afterthought. So to do that, we are extending actually specific capital support to enterprises to ensure that their solutions which they are designing are more gender inclusive in their design. The approaches that they are following to reach to their customers are more gender inclusive. The kind of material that they are using to build capacity of the customers, training materials and manuals and so on should be gender inclusive. And the kind of end user financing that we are looking at also has a lens of gender inclusion associated with it. So, yeah, that's briefly how we are capturing gender inclusion and ensuring that this is becoming a fundamental building block of the program and the program enterprises. Great.
0: That's fantastic. And and so I'd like to speak now a, a bit about the productive use technologies themselves and in particular around solar water pumps. So there are significant opportunities for solar water pumps that I think a lot of your work has already outlined, but also challenges on the side of environmental concerns with groundwater depletion and issues related to the use of water. Can you tell us about the need for irrigation and the importance of water pumps, and in particular solar water pumps, and what the potential is for that sector?
1: Right. So yeah, let me start with the need for irrigation. Uh, And just to contextualize, almost half of the aggregated area in India or the cultivated area in India is actually only rain-fed, which means only in the half of our net zone area, we end up doing any kind of irrigation, which means that a lot of productivity potential of land, of the other local resources, gets limited because your agriculture is rain-dependent, which means that for half of our land, we only typically take one crop, in a year, which is in the monsoon season. And for most of the other times, the land remain fallow. Now, it is in that context that irrigation becomes important. But at the same time, we need to ensure that how we can meet the irrigation demand in a sustainable way so that we are not stressing our water resources in any adverse manner. And so far, India has not done a great job, particularly in some of the geographies, especially if you look at most of the Western India, uh, right from Punjab in the north to uh, Maharashtra in the south. And if you look at some of the other southern states like Tamil Nadu or Andhra Pradesh uh, or Karnataka, uh, our water tables are depleting at a very rapid pace. In few areas, we have water levels depleted to the extent that they are severely stressed. And every year we are extracting more water than what can be naturally recharged in these aquifers. Uh, and we are running almost on a time bomb in some ways when we might see where community conflicts happening because of water. But at the same time, there are many areas in India where we have not really exploited our water resources. And this is particularly true for eastern India, where water de- table depths are fairly shallow. And because of the lack of reliable energy access, there has been very limited development of the groundwater resources and very limited extraction of the groundwater resources. So basically, the context varies uh, across the country. And as you can imagine, a country like India, which is fairly diverse and vast in its geography. So not a single solution would necessarily work across the board. And that's why my answer to your question is not going to be also as straightforward. Uh, So now in in the context of uh, solar water pumps, and particularly the concern with regard to water extraction, I think it is important to understand that how and where we deploy solar water pumps Of course, if uh, we end up deploying them left, right and center without really thinking through various other contextual challenges or contextual settings, we are going to create a disaster. And especially with the cost of the solar panels and the solar technology coming down, only in the last four years we have witnessed the fall in solar water pumps prices in India uh, to the extent of almost uh, 40 to 50%, which means that slowly they can become more and more accessible to Indian farmers. Even though right now, prices are still high enough for majority of the farmers to not buy them off the market, but that reality may soon change as the prices keep coming down. But as the prices keep coming down, we need to make sure that we have better regulations in place in order to ensure judicious use of water. And to do that, there are a few approaches that we are suggesting that we are helping state governments and the central governments with. And I would just take a couple of minutes to elaborate some of those. One, we deeply believe in data-driven decision-making. And in order to operationalize that for solar water pumps, we have created a tool which looks at 20 different parameters, including groundwater, including penetration of electric pumps, diesel pumps, kind of cropping cycles, climate vulnerability of districts, and various other things. And it looks at these parameters, districts after district, and then it tells you in which area, whether you should be deploying solar water pumps or not. And if you should be deploying, then what should be the approach to, to deploy them? Should it be standalone pumps? Should it be pumps connected to this electricity grid? Should it be solarization of the grid, but not individual pump set? Should it be micro pumps or should it be no pumps at all? And in some areas, we are only recommending solar water pumps if you are combining them with micro irrigation practices like drip irrigation or sprinkler irrigation, which makes sure that you are using the water in a judicious way. In other areas, we are combining solar water pumps with water harvesting and water recharge techniques. Without doing water recharge, you cannot extract more water from the ground. So I think some of those practices and those uh, approaches are necessary. We cannot only deploy solar water pumps, but we need to look at in what context we're deploying and along with what technologies we are deploying so that we make sure that we are not overstressing our existing water tables and aquifers. Having said that, uh, a lot of the existing exploitation of groundwater in India in particular has come on the back of electric pumps. In India, we have close to 20 million electricity driven pumps for agriculture. And one of the biggest challenges with agriculture sector in India with regards to its electricity consumption is that most of the electricity is subsidized. It's subsidized to the extent that in few states, farmers pay almost nothing for their electricity consumption, which means that the incentive structure is almost similar to what they would have in a solar water pump. Right now, there is zero marginal cost for them to use electricity and they keep on extracting water as much as they like. And same is the case with a solar water pump. except that solar water pump only runs in the day and except that you cannot keep changing the capacity of your solar water pump the way you can keep changing it for your electric pump because you have to invest a lot more to change the capacity of a 5 HP solar water pump to a 10 HP solar water pump. Because as the water table goes down, the same pump is either going to extract very limited water or will completely become defunct. So in some ways, solar water pumps are self-limiting because as the water table goes down, the pump itself will start becoming non-functional. Whereas that is not the case with the existing electricity driven pumps, especially on back of heavy subsidies from the government
0: that's really helpful context. And I think particularly interesting to think about the comparison with electric water pumps that are powered off grid electricity, but as you say, subsidized. And if if I recall correctly, in some areas, rural areas of India, you can actually have electricity systems with two power lines running in parallel, and the the farmers will actually tap into one of the, the power lines. Can you speak maybe a bit more about that and how that works?
1: Right. So precisely to address this challenge of excessive withdrawal of energy from the electricity grid for agriculture, in most part of the country, now we have two dedicated different electricity feeders that go into rural areas. Electricity lines, which are particularly for household and other electricity consumption, be it community use, be it some uh, productive use. And electricity lines, which are particularly going into the farms and are primarily for water pumps. And the reason for us to segregate these two lines is to make sure that we are able to roster the electricity that is going towards farms uh, to limit the number of hours for which a farmer can run their pumps. So this is a sort of very infrastructure intensive solution to limit our water withdrawals and to uh, limit our power subsidies, which are going towards the agriculture sector. Of course, given the political economy, it's very hard for the government to meter power consumption at the farm level. And that's why this is a long-drawn indirect process, which is also a very costly process to sort of almost uh, duplicate the electricity infrastructure in the rural uh, areas in order to make sure that we are limiting the power as well as the water uh, extraction in the farm sector.
0: Great. And you've done some work around water as a service with regards to solar water pumps. Can you tell us more about that approach and what that looks like for a farmer and what problems that is trying to solve?
1: Right. Right. That's a great question, Eugen. And apart from the various other things that I've talked about in terms of how we can ensure judicious use of water, one of the most business-oriented solution, which also seems like a fairly scalable solution, is water as a service model. Where instead of asking a farmer to own a pump and use it as and when they want, uh, you rather ask them to take the service of uh, water pumping as and when they want. So it's almost like a uberization of irrigation service or irrigation need where a farmer can book a uh, pumping service for, let's say, half a day tomorrow. Uh, a mobile water pump comes to the field. It withdraws water for the farmer from the farmer's bore well for the given amount of time. And it charges them based on the amount of water withdrawal or based of, on the number of running hours. And similarly, apart from the mobile solutions, there are also static solutions where a pump is installed in an area by a local village-level entrepreneur or a franchisee of a a larger enterprise. And then pump is then serving about 8 to 10 farmers in the vicinity, covering a command area of about 10 odd hectares and providing water as a service to these fields, I mean, per liter or per kiloliter basis. And what this does, it makes sure that the water is being used judiciously by the end user. Because you're paying for every drop of water, to make sure that you're using that water in an effective way. And that's how this model has a very significant co-benefit around ensuring sustainability of our water reserves and water resources.
0: And how well deployed is that solution or that business model approach? Are there lots of examples of that across India, or is it still pretty early days in deployment?
1: So there are uh, three or four different companies who are uh, working on this model in different parts of the country. And this model is particularly quite common in northern eastern parts of India, particularly in Bihar, in eastern Uttar Pradesh and so on, because the water tables are shallow, which means that the economic viability of the model is better. And it's also because there is a habit among farmers to pay for the water or the pumping service. Even earlier, they used to do that for diesel pumps. They used to rent diesel pumps for a day, for two days to do their pumping. So there is already a bit of market behavior, which is prevalent in the farmers in these areas. And the companies are actually trying to tap into that. So there is a company called Claro Energy, which has deployed uh, about 60 to 70 odd uh, mobile solar water pumps, particularly in the state of Bihar and a couple of them in eastern Uttar Pradesh, where they are using them for providing water service model. There are a couple of other companies, Urja, MLinda, which are providing water as a service through the static model, where there is either a microgrid, which they had set up with three or four pumps uh, attached to it. And those pumps are then covering a limited command area in their vicinity to provide the service. So it's still early days, but some of the companies are quite bullish in terms of scaling these up.
0: That was part one of our two-part conversation with Abhishek Jen from CEEW. In the next episode, we speak about his work and research in clean cooking and close our conversation with a discussion of his top 12 not-so-obvious takeaways about the productive energy use sector. His insights are really interesting, so we hope you join us then. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us as always on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources, and contact details available. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. It helps others find our podcast.